please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. Let me read those verses for us. Beginning in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Please pray with me one more time. Father, we need your help. Would the same Holy Spirit who anointed your Son, Jesus, who dwells in us, open our eyes to see the glory of your Son and your Word. Help me to preach faithfully. Help us to listen, Lord. Give us grace now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, you might recall, as we looked at the first few verses of Mark's gospel together, we met a man named John the Baptist. And John was introduced to us as preparing the way for someone coming after him. Mark tells us that John is the voice crying out in the wilderness predicted by the prophet Isaiah. And that is a voice crying out in preparation John's final words from last week's passage were about someone who comes after me, says John, someone who is mightier than I. So that leaves us with a question, who is this mightier one? Who is John preparing the way for? Well, look there with me at verse 3 of Mark chapter 1, at this prophecy from Isaiah. It says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Isaiah is very clear. John is preparing the way for the Lord, for God himself to come and save his people. When John says in verse 8 that the one coming after him will baptize with the Holy Spirit, That's noteworthy because the Old Testament is very clear. In Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel, the prophets all agree that the one who would pour out the Spirit is none other than God himself. So in last week's text, we have a very clear expectation established. After John comes God. Well, look with me at verse 9, the first verse of our passage. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Verses 1 to 8, after John comes God. Verse 9, after John comes Jesus. Clear conclusion, Jesus is God. This probably ordinary looking man from Nazareth which is a tiny backwater town out in the country. 
Mark is telling us he is none other than God in the flesh come to save his people. Look what happens there after Jesus' baptism in verses 10 and 11. It says, And when he, Jesus, came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice, clearly God's voice, came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. So what does it mean when this voice, clearly God's voice from heaven, thunders from heaven, you are my beloved Son? Especially since we've just seen that Mark seems to be implying that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. What's the voice from heaven doing? What does it mean when God tells Jesus, you are my beloved son? What does it mean? Two things. First, God the Father is here identifying this man Jesus as the Messiah. So that word Messiah uh, is from a Hebrew word meaning anointed one. So to anoint something or someone is literally to rub or smear it with oil. So in the Old Testament, certain prominent servants of God, uh, especially the king and the priest, they would be anointed with oil to symbolize the filling of God's spirit that they needed to carry out their office. Remember God's promise to King David, the anointed King David in the Old Testament, that one of his descendants would be the forever king. He would be the king supremely anointed by God's spirit to rule over God's people and to give them peace forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says this to David about the future spirit-anointed king that will come from his descendants. God says of this king, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. God says of the Messiah in the Old Testament, he shall be my son. Jesus shows up in Mark chapter 1, and God says to him, you are my son, right? Jesus is the Messiah. In our Old Testament reading from Isaiah chapter 42, we heard again about God's anointed servant. God speaks about his anointed servant in these words, which we read earlier. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. With you I am well pleased. Do you hear the echoes? I will put my spirit upon him. Right, The spirit descending on the servant like a dove. When God calls Jesus his son, in large part, what God is saying is that Jesus is the human Messiah. He is the prophesied one, anointed, filled, empowered by God's spirit to save his people. It's fair to say that in one sense, the entire Old Testament is the search for an obedient son. In the beginning, Adam is described as, as in a way, a son of God. And Adam fails. He rebels against his father and is exiled. In the book of Exodus, Israel is called God's son, his firstborn son. And Israel fails. Like Adam, they disobey the father and are exiled from the land. And none of King David's sons live up to the promise that God makes here in 2 Samuel. 
Mark here with his highlighter pen is saying for us, Jesus is the son you've been waiting for. He is the hero that the narrative arc of the Bible has been bending toward. He is the son who is finally fully pleasing to the father. Jesus is the human messianic son. But there's more. If we look at this statement, you are my son, in light of what we've just seen about the mightier one who follows John the Baptist, we can't miss that there's a second sense in which Jesus is God's son. Jesus is not only God's messianic human son, Jesus is also the eternal divine son of God. And that's why Mark is comfortable pointing out that John the Baptist preparing the way for the Lord is the same thing as John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is God the Son, eternally begotten of the Father. What does that mean, eternally begotten? We don't normally talk like that. Well, it means that God God the Son is himself God. He has existed as God for eternity with the Father. And it means that he is begotten, that his personhood has its source in the Father. The Son is who he is because of his relationship to the Father. He's the Word of the Father. He's the image of the Father. He's the radiance of the Father's glory. Equal to the Father, like the Father, one with the Father, and yet distinct from the Father, along with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the messianic human Son of God and the eternal divine Son of God. So before we dive into the text of Mark any further, I want us just to pause here very briefly for a moment to do some systematic theology. Uh, So I think we'll be able to understand some things in this text if we get just a little bit of systematic theology about who Jesus is under our belts here at the beginning. So throughout church history, believers have reflected at great length on passages like this one that speak of of Jesus as being truly God and also truly man. And the conclusion of the church has been that the Bible teaches that God the Son is one person with two natures. Okay, stick with me. One person with two natures. God the Son has a divine nature which has existed from eternity as God. In time, he also took to himself a human nature. In fact, a human nature exactly like our human natures, except without sin. So that formulation that God, God the Son is one person with two natures, that guards us against several misunderstandings. So Jesus is not two persons. It's not that there's God Jesus and man Jesus, and they work closely together, but they're not the same. Right? There's one person. But equally, Jesus doesn't have one nature that's half God and half man, right? Jesus is not like a minotaur. What's a minotaur, right? A minotaur is half bull, half man, but fully neither, right? Jesus' two natures don't combine into some third thing, into some superhuman. No, Jesus' human nature is like our human nature, and his divine nature is like God himself. In fact, he is God himself by virtue of his divine nature. 
his human nature and his divine nature, they are distinct, as we'll see later in the passage, but they're also inseparably united to one another. Jesus is truly God, truly man, one person with two natures. So now in in our text this morning, we see some of the pieces of the puzzle. Mark himself is not doing systematic theology. That's That's a bit of an aside to help us see clearly from the perspective of what the whole Bible teaches. But I do think it's right to say that the main point of these first 13 verses in Mark's gospel is to establish the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. That is the main point, I believe, of these first 13 verses. That's what Mark is doing for his readers. He's showing us this Jesus is the Son of God. See, throughout Mark's gospel, we're going to see Jesus do and say amazing things. And as Jesus does all these things and says amazing stuff, people are going to size up Jesus in a variety of ways. They're going to be very impressed with him and draw all sorts of different conclusions. Some will think he's demon-possessed. Some will think he's a prophet. Some will think he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some think he's crazy. So what Mark has done for us is to tip his hand at the beginning, so to speak, before we watch the characters of the drama kind of figure out, wow, who is this Jesus? He shows us. He says, look, he's the son of God. God himself from heaven said so. He is the Lord whose way John was preparing. He is the Messiah anointed by God's spirit. He is the champion who fights with Satan in the wilderness. So friends, listen, as we study through Mark's gospel together in coming weeks, Lord willing, again and again and again, the main point, the application of the sermon is going to be that we see Jesus more clearly. That's what Mark wants for us as we walk through his gospel. And saints, listen, there's nothing we need more than to see Jesus more clearly. That's because when we see the goodness of Jesus, that's when we want to obey him. When we see that Jesus is trustworthy, that's when we bank on his promises. When we see that Jesus is mighty, mighty over the storm, mighty over death, mighty over everything that we face in this life, that's when we learn to cast our anxieties on him. When we see that Jesus is glorious, that's when we want to be like him. When we see that Jesus is full of kindness and compassion, that's when we want to pour our hearts out to him. When we see that Jesus is abounding in mercy, that's when we're made willing to come to him with our sins, to confess them. When we see that Jesus is full of steadfast love for his people, that's when we want to know him more than we want anything else. As we continue to study through Mark's gospel, may God give us eyes to see the glory of his son Jesus so that we might love and trust and follow him. With the rest of our time this morning, I just want us to consider four pieces of this story that Mark unfolds for us about Jesus. Four points, each a piece of this story that Mark 
unfolds for us about Jesus. First, I want us to think for a moment about the hometown of Jesus. The hometown of Jesus. Where are you from? Well, John tells us that in verse 9, Jesus was from a town called Nazareth in Galilee. One scholar I read estimated that Nazareth would have been a town with about 500 people. Tiny town. And what's more, Nazareth was in the northern part of Israel. And in Jesus' day, there was something of a rivalry between the north and the south in Israel. So the south is where the capital Jerusalem was. Uh, It's where the rich and the educated were. And the north was the comparatively blue-collar section of the country. It was comparatively working class, on average, less educated, less highly cultured. So when Mark tells us that Jesus was from Nazareth, a small town, in Galilee, the north, what he's saying is that Jesus was from backwater nowhere. He would have grown up poor. Right? He, he was never accepted by the elites of his day down in Jerusalem. So much of my life, I've spent near uh, major cities. And I think when you're from the city, and when you spend time out in the country, out in like a tiny, tiny town in the middle of nowhere, it can be so easy to think, man, nothing important is going on here. Right? That's not a right attitude, but it can be easy to have that attitude. Well, think about this. Jesus, who being God could have written the story any way he wanted to, he chose to grow up in a place like that. Jesus, the God-man, eternally begotten of the Father, glorious, sinless, death-conquering Messiah, he grew up in a tiny town in the middle of nowhere in a poor family. See, in the humility of Jesus' earthly origins, we get a foretaste of the kind of Messiah that Jesus is going to be. Mark loves to point this out. Jesus is willing to identify with the lowly. He is one who, although exalted and mighty, humbles himself to serve, to serve the lowly. That's Jesus' hometown, Nazareth in Galilee. Second piece of this story that I want us to consider is the baptism of Jesus, Jesus' baptism. So remember last week, we saw that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, Jesus, being God, being a perfect man, as other parts of the Bible affirm, he had no sins to repent from. He needed no forgiveness. So what's he doing being baptized? Well, in in Matthew's account of the story, John the Baptist actually has the same question that we do. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we read this. Matthew writes, John would have prevented Jesus from being baptized, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So why does Jesus get baptized? Jesus just says to John, this is part of fulfilling all righteousness. And that that doesn't really seem to be a fulsome explanation, right? Jesus doesn't undertake to explain why being baptized is a part of fulfilling all righteousness. 
Well, it, it appears that what's going on here is that Jesus is identifying with the sinful people of God. By being baptized, which is what God's people were supposed to do, Jesus is expressing solidarity with, or he is putting his hand up as a representative of the sinful people of God. So remember last week, we thought briefly about how baptism, in baptism, we see the symbolism of safe passage through the judgment of God through the waters of judgment, so to speak. So Noah and his family, they passed safely through the flood that was a judgment on the earth, and Peter compares that to a baptism. Moses and the people of Israel, they passed safely through the Red Sea, the waters of judgment that drowned the Egyptians, and Paul calls their passage through those waters a baptism. Well, saints, the reason that we can be confident that on the day of judgment, when God judges the world in righteousness, that we will pass safely through that judgment is because Jesus endured the waters of God's judgment for us in our place as a substitute. So the more I've thought about it, the more I really think that this short account of Jesus' baptism is kind of a microcosm or a miniature of what Jesus came to do. Later in Mark's gospel, Jesus speaks about his upcoming suffering and death on the cross as a baptism. He calls his death on the cross under God's wrath a baptism. And notice in verse 10, it says that when Jesus was baptized in water, what happens? The heavens were torn open. And then there's a voice that says, you are the son of God. Well, after Jesus' baptism in God's wrath on the cross, what happens? That same word, torn open, the only other place that it occurs in Mark's gospel is after Jesus dies. And immediately after he dies, Mark shifts the camera and we're told the curtain of the temple was torn open from top to bottom. And then we hear another voice, a Gentile voice saying, this man was the son of God. It's meant to connect the two baptisms of Jesus in our mind, symbolically undergoing the waters of judgment at his first baptism, and really and truly and finally experiencing the wrath of God as a substitute for God's people on the cross. Now, after Jesus experiences water baptism, then the Spirit comes and anoints him and God expresses his pleasure in him as the beloved son. Well, after Jesus' baptism under God's wrath on the cross, after he's plunged into the hell that we have deserved for our sins, the Spirit comes and raises him from the dead and glorifies him. And God the Father expresses his pleasure in the Son who has accomplished all his will. See, Jesus wasn't baptized because he needed it. Jesus was baptized because we needed someone who could endure the waters of God's judgment, the hell we have earned, and emerge victorious on the other side to obtain for us the blessing of God that we haven't deserved. In the baptism of Jesus, we see that Jesus, at great cost to himself, he identified himself with us. Jesus made our problem his problem. Has anyone ever done that for you? Right? You're moving? Ah, oh, I'm going to come help you move. You're sick? I got you. I'm bringing you food. 
Are you need a ride? I'm there. I'll pick you up. You need to talk? I'm here. Let's talk. Let me listen. I'll make your problem my problem, right? Friends, our problem was that we had hated and offended and rebelled against Jesus. And that's why apart from Christ, we were liable to God's eternal judgment. But in his mercy, in his compassion, Jesus Christ looks on sinners like us facing his own judgment. And he says, I'll make your problem my problem. I will identify with you. So friend, let me ask you, are you identified with Jesus? Do you belong to him? Are you trusting in Jesus alone to bring you safely through God's judgment against sin? Is there a gospel preaching church that recognizes your baptism as a sign of your union with Christ by faith? If you're not sure, friend, please listen, there's nothing more urgent than finding safe passage through God's judgment, through union with Jesus Christ. Please don't leave here this morning without speaking, about, speaking to someone about how that can be yours by faith. In the baptism of Jesus, we see what Jesus came to do, which is to rescue us from our big problem as our substitute by identifying with us. Third piece of this story I want us to look at this morning. We've seen the hometown of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus. Third piece is the anointing of Jesus. This moment after Jesus' baptism when the Spirit descends and the Father speaks. So I realize that in speaking about salvation from the wrath of God, there is a danger that we start to think of Jesus as kind of the nice guy among the members of the Trinity, right? There's a danger that we come to view God the Father as really wanting to punish us were it not for kind Jesus who restrains him by dying on the cross. But that's not at all the picture that we get in the Bible of the Trinity. In the Bible, the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they work in perfect harmony with one another. For one thing, Jesus himself is eternally wrathful against sin. In Revelation chapter 6, we read about the wrath of the Lamb, right? That's the wrath of Jesus against sin, right? Jesus is gentle and lowly and meek to the penitent. But Jesus is not in any way opposed to the wrath of the Father against sin. He joins with the Father in that wrath against sin because like the Father, he is good and righteous. Well, likewise, wonderfully, marvelously, the Trinity is not divided but united in God's work of mercy. Look again at verses 10 and 11. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Why? Because the Father has sent the Spirit to anoint, to indwell, to fill, to empower the Son for the work of saving us. Next, what happens? A voice comes, comes from heaven, the Father's voice. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus is, I'm sorry, the Father is pleased with what Jesus is doing. What's Jesus doing? He's saving sinners. He's doing what the Father sent him to do. 
It's the Father's pleasure to give his people the kingdom through the work of Jesus. Right? This, this plan that Jesus would come and undergo the baptism, the judgment that we deserved, it's a merciful and eternal conspiracy of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father delights to send the Son to save sinners. He delights to give the Spirit to empower the Son to save sinners. And saints, when we trust in Christ, when we are united to Him by faith, then the same Holy Spirit who descended on Jesus to anoint Him, He comes to dwell in us. John told us in verse 8 that the, the one coming after Him would baptize God's people with the Holy Spirit. So listen, if, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, if you belong to him, and however you feel today, his Holy Spirit dwells in you, and you are united to Jesus Christ. And if you are united to Jesus Christ, the Gospel of John tells us that the Father loves you with the same love that he has for his son Jesus. I was reading a commentary in preparation for this, this sermon this week, one of the more popular level commentaries, and uh, the commentator encouraged his readers, take that statement that the Father utters, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And he said, hear the Father say that about you. Not because you're doing such a great job as a Christian right now, but because you are united to the son of his love. God loved you to give that son up to his wrath so that he might have you. Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you are God's beloved son or daughter, and he delights in you. In this anointing of Jesus, we get a snapshot of the triune God who delights to save sinners and delights in the sinners that he saves by his grace alone through the work of his son. We've seen the hometown of Jesus. We've seen the baptism of Jesus, the anointing of Jesus. Fourth and final piece of our story this morning is the temptation of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus. So given all that we've seen about who Jesus is, what would you expect happens to him immediately after we hear God pronounce his good pleasure over his son? The son with whom God is pleased. How does life go for him? We'll look again at verses 12 and 13. They say the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Jesus, the well-pleasing beloved son of God, is driven by the spirit into the wilderness for a season of testing and temptation and suffering. From Matthew's account, read for us earlier, we know that Jesus is fasting from food for 40 days and that Satan shows up and starts dialoguing with Jesus to tempt him. By the way, do you know any other Bible stories where Satan shows up and starts dialoguing with God's son in order to tempt him? Right? Satan tempts all kinds of people in the Bible, but 
I only know one other Bible story where Satan shows up and starts talking to God's son to convince him to try to eat something, right? It sounds like Adam from the Garden of Eden. But Adam isn't fasting in the wilderness. Adam lives in a garden paradise with every kind of fruit he could have wanted. But Adam listens to Satan. And that's why humanity gets kicked out of the garden and, so to speak, into the wilderness, right? And did you notice Mark's emphasis on that location, the wilderness, right? He says, Mark says, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness, right? That's not how we normally talk. One Bible commentator I read says, you don't normally say, I went to Kansas and I was in Kansas, right? That's redundant, well, what's Mark doing? He's highlighting the importance of Jesus being in the wilderness. Do you know any other sons that were tempted in the wilderness for a period measured by the number 40? Right? Sounds like Israel. And how did that son do? Obeying God in the wilderness, tempted. Not very well, right? Israel's track record of obedience in the wilderness is deplorable, Israel is not the son whose obedience brings the blessing of God to the world. So do you see what Mark is doing? Mark is showing us Jesus is the son who succeeds where Adam failed, where Israel failed. By the way, where you and I fail when we grumble about the wilderness, when we respond to the difficulties that God's spirit leads us through with rebellion and complaining. We are not the successful son, but Jesus is. He faces off the devil in the wilderness and wins so that through his victory, we might be brought back to the garden. See what Mark is doing? Jesus is the successful son. Look at him. He is the son of God. Right? The primary point of this temptation narrative is not about us. The primary point of the temptation is that Jesus has succeeded where we've failed. He has done what we could not, and through his perfect obedience, he has earned the blessing of God. He has earned eternal life for all who will trust in him. And now that he has done that, now that we have been saved by him, now that he is our substitute, he calls us to follow him. Jesus faced temptation in the wilderness to succeed where we have failed to earn what we could not earn. And now that he saved us, he calls us to trust him when we're in the wilderness. See, later in the gospel, we'll find it put this way. Jesus went to the cross to do what only he could do. Jesus didn't go to the cross primarily to give us an example, but to accomplish what we could not, to bear the wrath of God and earn eternal life. But now that he has, he calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him, not to re-earn what he's earned, but to manifest the life of obedience that he has purchased for us. So saints, it's right and biblical that we would see something of the pattern for our lives in the Lord Jesus' time, in the wilderness, suffering led by the Spirit of God even, into a period of suffering. See, this is our wise and kind Heavenly Father's way with His children. God refines His people through suffering, even through allowing them to be tempted. 
That's part of the plan for God's people. This is what the book of Hebrews says about the sufferings of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. The writer says, although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You see, the full obedience of Jesus was produced through suffering, in part through this suffering in the wilderness. So understand, Jesus never sinned. He never did anything wrong. There was never anything sinful or evil about his character. But as a man, with respect to his human nature, right, he did grow and learn and mature into the fullness of what his father had called him to be. Now, with with respect to his divine nature, Jesus did not grow His divine nature is eternally unchangeable. In fact, based on the book of James, we can say that with respect to his divine nature, he was not tempted. The divine nature was not tempted, but his human nature, inseparably but distinctly united to the divine nature in the same person, his human nature was really tempted. And by the way, his divinity, his divine nature, doesn't mean that his human sufferings were not difficult. The Bible is very clear that Jesus really suffered when he suffered. It's not like his God powers rushed in and made everything easy for him. As a man, Jesus learned obedience through suffering. And the testimony of Scripture, saints, is that that's how it is for us too. Listen, God is a father who wants good things for his children He has promised to his children an eternity of comfort and ease with him. And because he is wise in this life, he wants better things for us than our unbroken comfort and ease. He knows that we often need other good, even hard medicine to mature us into the image of his son. So Christian, are you suffering Are you suffering? Don't infer from your sufferings that God doesn't love you, that he isn't pleased with you. Don't read God's attitude toward you from your sufferings. If you are the son of God, said Satan, if I were the beloved child of God, he wouldn't have done so and so. Friends, that's Satan's logic. What's the logic of the Lord Jesus? Hear what God says of you in the gospel. You are my adopted son in the beloved Lord Jesus Christ. And read your circumstances through that lens. If you are in Christ, you are a beloved child of God in whom he delights. And as it was for our older brother, so it is for us. God's plan to make us into his image and to bring us to glory often leads through the wilderness. The good news is that the same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus for his life of obedience on earth, Jesus, having obeyed and ascended, has poured that Spirit out on us. Saints, we don't walk through the wilderness alone. We walk through it with a good, kind shepherd who dwells with us and promises to bring us through the wilderness to dwell in his house forever. Let's pray he would keep us faithful until he comes. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the view of his glory that we get in the gospel of Mark. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the son of God and the son of man. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have endured God's wrath in our place. Lord, that when we were helpless under your condemnation, Lord Jesus, you made our problem your problem. Thank you, Lord. Would you fill our hearts with gratitude for your goodness to us? Jesus, thank you that you triumphed where we have failed, that you have earned for us the eternal life that we have forfeited. Lord, I pray that you would help us to follow the Lord Jesus through the wilderness, through the suffering through which you call us in this life. Lord, would you encourage and strengthen us by the same Holy Spirit that anointed him? Would you remind us of our ultimate triumph in Christ and of his great love for us and presence with us as we walk through this life? God, be with us and bless us. Do these things we ask for your glory and for our joy. Through Jesus Christ, amen.